Section 17 of Myths and Legends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy LaFaro, New South Wales, Australia. Myths and Legends of Ancient Greece and Rome by E. M. Behrens. Section 17, Third Dynasty. Night and Her Children. Hori through Asclepius. Hori. Seasons. Closely allied to the Graces were the Hori, or Seasons, who were also represented as three beautiful maidens, daughters of Zeus and Themis. Their names were Eunomia, Dice, and Irene. It may appear strange that these divinities, presiding over the seasons, should be but three in number, but this is quite in accordance with the notions of the ancient Greeks, who only recognised spring, summer, and autumn as seasons, nature being supposed to be wrapped in death or slumber during that cheerless and unproductive portion of the year which we call winter. In some parts of Greece, there were but two hori, Thalo, goddess of the bloom, and Carpo of the corn and fruit-bearing season. The hori are always regarded as friendly towards mankind, and totally devoid of guile or subtlety. They are represented as joyous, but gentle maidens, crowned with flowers, and holding each other by the hand in a round dance. When they are depicted separately, as personifications of the different seasons, the horror representing spring appears laden with flowers. That of summer bears a sheaf of corn, whilst the personification of autumn has her hands filled with clusters of grapes and other fruits. They also appear in company with the graces, in the train of Aphrodite, and are seen with Apollo and the Muses. They are inseparably connected with all that is good and beautiful in nature, and as the regular alternation of the seasons, like all her other operations, demands the most perfect order and regularity, the Hori, being the daughters of Themis, came to be regarded as the representatives of order, and the just administration of human affairs in civilized communities. Each of these graceful maidens took upon herself a separate function, Eunomia presided more especially over state life. Dice guarded the interests of individuals, whilst Irene, the gayest and brightest of the three sisters, was the light-hearted companion of Dionysus. The Hori were also the deities of the fast fleeting hours, and thus presided over the smaller as well as the larger divisions of time. In this capacity, they assist every morning in yoking the celestial horses to the glorious chariot of the sun, which they again help to unyoke when he sinks to rest. In their original conception, they were personifications of the clouds, and are described as opening and closing the gates of heaven, and causing fruits and flowers to spring forth when they pour down upon them their refreshing and life-giving streams. The Nymphs the graceful beings called the nymphs were the presiding deities of the woods, grottoes, streams, meadows, etc. These divinities were supposed to be beautiful maidens of fairy-like form, 
and robed in more or less shadowy garments. They were held in the greatest veneration, though being minor divinities they had no temples dedicated to them, but were worshipped in caves or grottoes, with libations of milk, honey, oil, etc. They may be divided into three distinct classes, viz. water, mountain, and tree or wood nymphs. Water nymphs Oceanides, Nereides, and Naiades. The worship of water deities is common to most primitive nations. The streams, springs, and fountains of a country bear the same relation to it, which the blood coursing through the numberless arteries of a human being bears to the body. Both represent the living, moving, life-awakening element, without which existence would be impossible. Hence we find among most nations a deep feeling of attachment to the streams and waters of their native land, the remembrance of which, when absent in foreign climes, is always treasured with peculiar fondness. Thus among the early Greeks, each tribe came to regard the rivers and springs of its individual state as beneficent powers, which brought blessing and prosperity to the country. It is probable also that the charm which ever accompanies the sound of running water exercised its power over their imagination. They heard with delight the gentle whisper of the fountain, lulling the senses with its low rippling tones, the soft purling of the brook as it rushes over the pebbles, or the mighty voice of the waterfall as it dashes on its headlong course, and the beings which they pictured to themselves as presiding over all these charming sights and sounds of nature, corresponded, in their graceful appearance, with the scenes with which they were associated. Oceanides The Oceanides, or Ocean Nymphs, were the daughters of Oceanus and Tethys, and, like most sea divinities, were endowed with the gift of prophecy. They are personifications of those delicate vapour-like exhalations which, in warm climates, are emitted from the surface of the sea, more especially at sunset, and are impelled forwards by the evening breeze. They are accordingly represented as misty, shadowy beings, with graceful swaying forms, and robed in pale blue gauze-like fabrics. THE NEREIDES The Nereides were the daughters of Nereus and Doris, and were nymphs of the Mediterranean Sea. They are similar in appearance to the Oceanides, but their beauty is of a less shadowy order, and is more like that of mortals. They wear a flowing, pale green robe. Their liquid eyes resemble, in their clear depths, the lucid waters of the sea they inhabit. Their hair floats carelessly over their shoulders, and assumes the greenish tint of the water itself, which, far from deteriorating from their beauty, greatly adds to its effect. The Nereides either accompany the chariot of the mighty ruler of the sea, or follow in his train. They are told by the poets that the lonely mariner watches the Nereides with silent awe and wondering delight, as they rise from their grotto palaces in the deep and dance in joyful groups over the sleeping waves. Some, with arms entwined, 
follow with their movements the melodies which seem to hover over the sea, whilst others scatter liquid gems around, these being emblematical of the phosphorescent light so frequently observed at night by the traveller in southern waters. The best known of the Nereides were Thetis, the wife of Peleus, Amphrodite, the spouse of Poseidon, and Galatea, the beloved of Assis. The Naiades The Naiades were the nymphs of fresh-water springs, lakes, brooks, rivers, etc. As the trees, plants, and flowers owed their nourishment to their genial fostering care, these divinities were regarded by the Greeks as special benefactors to mankind. Like all the nymphs, they possessed the gift of prophecy, for which reason many of the springs and fountains over which they presided were believed to inspire mortals who drank of their waters with the power of foretelling future events. The Naiades are intimately connected in idea with those flowers which are called after them nymphae, or water-lilies, whose broad green leaves and yellow cups float upon the surface of the water, as though proudly conscious of their own grace and beauty. We often hear of the Naiades forming alliances with mortals, and also of their being wooed by the sylvan deities of the woods and dales. Dryads or tree-nymphs the tree-nymphs partook of the distinguishing characteristics of the particular tree to whose life they were wedded, and were known collectively by the name of the dryads. The hamadryads, or oak-nymphs, represent, in their peculiar individuality, the quiet, self-reliant power which appears to belong essentially to the grand and lordly king of the forest. The birch-nymph is a melancholy maiden with floating hair, resembling the branches of the pale and fragile-looking tree which she inhabits. The beech-nymph is strong and sturdy, full of life and joyousness, and appears to give promise of faithful love and undisturbed repose, whilst her rosy cheeks, deep brown eyes, and graceful form bespeak health, vigour, and vitality. The nymph of the linden tree is represented as a little coy maiden, whose short silver-grey dress reaches a little below the knee, and displays to advantage her delicately formed limbs. The sweet face, which is partly averted, reveals a pair of large blue eyes, which appear to look at you with wondering surprise and shy mistrust. Her pale golden hair is bound by the faintest streak of rose-coloured ribbon. The tree-nymph, being wedded to the life of the tree she inhabited, ceased to exist when it was either felled or so injured as to wither away and die. Nymphs of the Valleys and Mountains Napii and Oreades The Napii were the kind and gentle nymphs of the valleys and glens who appear in the train of Artemis. They are represented as lovely maidens with short tunics, which, reaching only to the knee, do not impede their swift and graceful movements in the exercise of the chase. Their pale brown tresses are fastened in a knot at the back of the head, whence a few stray curls escape over their shoulders. The Nepii 
are shy as the fawns, and quiet as frolicsome. The Oreades, or mountain nymphs, who are the principal and constant companions of Artemis, are tall, graceful maidens, attired as huntresses. They are ardent followers of the chase, and spare neither the gentle deer nor the timid hare, nor indeed any animal they meet within their rapid course. Wherever their wild hunt goes, the shy Napii are represented as hiding behind the leaves, whilst their favourites, the fawns, kneel tremblingly beside them, looking up beseechingly for protection from the wild huntresses, and even the bold satyrs dart away at their approach and seek safety in flight. There is a myth connected with one of these mountain nymphs, the unfortunate Echo. She became enamoured of a beautiful youth named Narcissus, son of the river god Cephasus, who, however, failed to return her love, which so grieved her that she gradually pined away, becoming a mere shadow of her former self, till at length nothing remained of her except her voice, which henceforth gave back, with unerring fidelity, every sound that was uttered in the hills and dales. Narcissus himself also met with an unhappy fate, for Aphrodite punished him by causing him to fall in love with his own image, which he beheld in a neighbouring fountain, whereupon, consumed with unrequited love, he wasted away, and was changed into a flower which bears his name. The Limonaeides, or meadow nymphs, resemble the Naides, and are usually represented dancing hand in hand in a circle. The Hyades, who in appearance are somewhat similar to the Oceanides, are cloudy divinities, and, from the fact of their being invariably accompanied by rain, are represented as incessantly weeping. The Meliades were the nymphs who presided over fruit trees. Before concluding this subject, attention should be drawn to the fact that, in more modern times, this beautiful idea of animating all nature in detail reappears under the various local traditions extant in different countries. Thus do the Oceanides and Nereides live again in the mermaids, whose existence is still believed in by mariners, whilst the flower and the meadow nymphs assume the shape of those tiny elves and fairies, who were formerly believed to hold their midnight revels in every wood and on every common. Indeed, even at the present day, the Irish peasantry, especially in the West, firmly believe in the existence of the fairies, or good people, as they are called. THE WINDS According to the oldest accounts, Aeolus was a king of the Aeolian islands, to whom Zeus gave the command of the winds which he kept shut up in a deep cave, and which he freed at his pleasure or at the command of the gods. In later times, the above belief underwent a change, and the winds came to be regarded as distinct divinities, whose aspect accorded with the respective winds with which they were identified. They were depicted as winged youths, in full vigour in the act of flying through the air. The principal winds were... Boreas, the north wind, Eurus, the east wind, Zephyrus, the west wind, and Notus, the south wind, 
who were said to be the children of Eos and Astrius. There are no myths of interest connected with these divinities. Zephyrus was united to Chloris, Flora, the goddess of flowers. Of Boreas it is related that, while flying over the river Ilissus, he beheld on the banks Orithia, the charming daughter of Erechtheus, king of Athens, whom he carried off to his native Thrace, and there made her his bride. Boreas and Orithia were the parents of Zetes and Calais, afterwards famous in the expedition of the Argonauts. There was an altar erected at Athens in honour of Boreas, in commemoration of his having destroyed the Persian fleet sent to attack the Greeks. On the Acropolis at Athens there was a celebrated octagonal temple built by Pericles, which was dedicated to the winds, and on its sides were their various representations. The ruins of this temple are still to be seen. Pan, Faunus Pan was the god of fertility, and the special patron of shepherds and huntsmen. He presided over all rural occupations, was chief of the satyrs, and head of all rural divinities. According to the common belief, he was the son of Hermes, and a wood-nymph, and came into the world with horns sprouting from his forehead, a goat's beard, and a crooked nose, pointed ears, and the tail and feet of a goat, and presented altogether so repulsive an appearance that, at the sight of him, his mother fled in dismay. Hermes, however, took up his curious little offspring, wrapped him in a hare-skin, and carried him in his arms to Olympus. The grotesque form and merry antics of the little stranger made him a great favourite with all the immortals, especially Dionysus, and they bestowed upon him the name of Pan, all, because he had delighted them all. His favourite haunts were grottoes, and his delight was to wander in uncontrolled freedom over rocks and mountains, following his various pursuits, ever cheerful and usually very noisy. He was a great lover of music, singing, dancing, and all pursuits which enhanced the pleasures of life, and hence in spite of his repulsive appearance, we see him surrounded with nymphs of the forests and dales, who love to dance round him to the cheerful music of his pipe, the syrinx. The myth concerning the origin of Pan's pipe is as follows. Pan became enamoured of a beautiful nymph called Syrinx, who, appalled at his terrible appearance, fled from the pertinacious attentions of her unwelcome suitor. He pursued her to the banks of the river Ladon, when, seeing his near approach and feeling escape impossible, she called on the gods for assistance, who, in answer to her prayer, transformed her into a reed, just as Pan was about to seize her. Whilst the lovesick Pan was sighing and lamenting his unfortunate fate, the winds gently swayed the reeds, and produced a murmuring sound as of one complaining. Charmed with the soothing tones, he endeavoured to reproduce them himself, and after cutting seven of the reeds of unequal length, he joined them together and succeeded in producing the pipe, which he called the Syrinx, in memory of his lost love. 
Pan was regarded by shepherds as their most valiant protector, who defended their flocks from the attacks of wolves. The shepherds of these early times have no penfolds, were in the habit of gathering together their flocks in mountain caves to protect them against the inclemency of the weather and also to secure them at night against the attacks of wild animals. These caves, therefore, which were very numerous in the mountain districts of Arcadia, Boeotia, etc., were all consecrated to Pan. As it is customary in all tropical climates to repose during the heat of the day, Pan is represented as greatly enjoying his afternoon sleep in the cool shelter of a tree or cave, and also as being highly displeased at any sound which disturbed his slumbers, for which reason the shepherds were always particularly careful to keep unbroken silence during these hours, whilst they themselves indulged in a quiet siesta. Pan was usually beloved by huntsmen, being himself a great lover of the woods, which afforded to his cheerful and active disposition full scope, and in which he loved to range at will. He was regarded as the patron of the chase, and the rural sportsman, returning from an unsuccessful day's sport, beat, in token of their displeasure, the wooden image of Pan, which always occupied a prominent place in their dwellings. All sudden and unaccountable sounds which startled travellers in lonely spots were attributed to Pan, who possessed a frightful and most discordant voice, hence the term panic terror, to indicate sudden fear. The Athenians ascribed their victory at Marathon to the alarm which he created among the Persians by his terrible voice. Pan was gifted with the power of prophecy, which he is said to have imparted to Apollo, and he possessed a well-known and very ancient oracle in Arcadia, in which state he was more especially worshipped. The artists of later times have somewhat toned down the original very unattractive conception of Pan, as above described, and merely represent him as a young man, hardened by the exposure to all weathers which a rural life involves, and bearing in his hand the shepherd's crook and syrinx, these being his usual attributes whilst small horns project from his forehead. He is either undraped, or wears merely a light cloak, called the clamis. The usual offerings to Pan were milk and honey in shepherd's bowls. Cows, lambs and rams were also sacrificed to him. After the introduction of Pan into the worship of Dionysus, we hear of a number of little Pans, Penishi, who are sometimes confounded with the satyrs. Faunus The Romans had an old Italian divinity called Faunus, who, as the god of shepherds, was identified with the Greek Pan, and represented in a similar manner. Faunus is frequently called Inuus, or the fertilizer, and Lepercus, or the one who wards off wolves. Like Pan, he possessed the gift of prophecy, and was the presiding spirit of the woods and fields. He also shared with his Greek prototype the faculty of alarming travellers in solitary places. Bad dreams and evil apparitions were attributed to Faunus, and he was believed to enter houses stealthily at night for this purpose. 
Fauna was the wife of Faunus, and participated in his functions. The Satyrs The Satyrs were a race of woodland spirits, who evidently personified the free, wild, and untrammeled life of the forest. Their appearance was both grotesque and repulsive. They had flat, broad noses, pointed ears, and little horns sprouting from their foreheads, a rough, shaggy skin, and small goat's tails. They led a life of pleasure and self-indulgence, followed the chase, reveled in every description of wild music and dancing, were terrible wine-bibbers, and addicted to the deep slumbers which follow heavy potations. They were no less dreaded by mortals than by the gentle woodland nymphs, who always avoided their coarse, rough sports. The satyrs were conspicuous figures in the train of Dionysus, and, as we have seen, Silenus, their chief, was tutor to the wine-god. The older satyrs were called Silens, and are represented in antique sculpture, as more nearly approaching the human form. In addition to the ordinary satyrs, artists delighted in depicting little satyrs, young imps, frolicking about the woods in a marvellous variety of droll attitudes. These little fellows greatly resemble their friends and companions, the Panishi. In rural districts, it was customary for the shepherds and peasants who attended the festivals of Dionysus to dress themselves in the skins of goats and other animals, and under this disguise they permitted themselves all kinds of playful tricks and excesses, to which circumstance the conception of the satyrs is by some authorities attributed. In Rome, the old Italian wood divinities, the fauns, who had goat's feet and all other characteristics of the satyrs, greatly exaggerated, were identified with them. Priapus. Priapus, the son of Dionysus and Aphrodite, was regarded as the god of fruitfulness, the protector of flocks, sheep, goats, bees, the fruit of the vine, and all garden produce. His statues, which were set up in gardens and vineyards, acted not only as objects of worship, but also as scarecrows, the appearance of this god being especially repulsive and unsightly. These statues were formed of wood or stone, and from the hips downwards were merely rude columns. They represent him as having a red and very ugly face. He bears in his hand a pruning knife and his head is crowned with a wreath of vine and laurel. He usually carries fruit in his garments, or a cornucopia in his hand, always, however, retaining his singularly revolting aspect. It is said that Hera, wishing to punish Aphrodite, sent her this misshapen and unsightly son, and that when he was born his mother was so horrified at the sight of him that she ordered him to be exposed on the mountains, where he was found by some shepherds, who, taking pity on him, saved his life. This divinity was chiefly worshipped at Lampsacus, his birthplace. Asses were sacrificed to him, and he received the first fruits of the fields and gardens, with a libation of milk and honey. The worship of Priapus was introduced into Rome at the same time as that of Aphrodite, and was identified with a native Italian divinity named Metunus. Asclepius Asculapius 
Asclepius, the son of the healing art, was the son of Apollo and the nymph Coronis. He was educated by the noble centaur Chiron, who instructed him in all knowledge, but more especially in that of the properties of herbs. Asclepius searched out the hidden powers of plants and discovered cures for the various diseases which afflict the human body. He brought his art to such perfection that he not only succeeded in warding off death, but also restored the dead to life. It was popularly believed that he was materially assisted in his wonderful cures by the blood of the Medusa, given to him by Pallas Athene. It is well to observe that the shrines of this divinity, which were usually built in healthy places, on hills outside the town, or near wells which were believed to have healing powers, offered at the same time means of cure for the sick and suffering, thus combining religious with sanitary influences. It was the custom for the sufferer to sleep in the temple, when, if he had been earnest in his devotions, Asclepius appeared to him in a dream, and revealed the means to be employed for the cure of his malady. On the walls of these temples were hung tablets, inscribed by the different pilgrims, with the particulars of their maladies, the remedies practised, and the cures worked by the god, a custom undoubtedly productive of most beneficial results. Groves, temples, and altars were dedicated to Asclepius in many parts of Greece. But Epidorus, the chief seat of his worship, where indeed it is said to have originated, contained his principal temple, which served at the same time as a hospital. The statue of Asclepius in the temple at Epidorus was formed of ivory and gold, and represented him as an old man with a full beard, leaning on a staff round which a serpent is climbing. The serpent was the distinguishing symbol of this divinity, partly because these reptiles were greatly used by the ancients in the cure of diseases, and partly also because all the prudence and wisdom of the serpent were deemed indispensable to the judicious physician. His usual attributes are a staff, a bowl, a bunch of herbs, a pineapple, a dog, and a serpent. His children inherited, for the most part, the distinguished talents of their father. Two of his sons, Machaon and Podalirius, accompanied Agamemnon to the Trojan War, in which expedition they became renowned not only as military heroes, but also as skilful physicians. Their sisters, Hygieia, Health, and Panacea, or Healing, had temples dedicated to them, and received divine honours. The function of Hygieia was to maintain the health of the community, which great blessing was supposed to be brought by her as a direct and beneficent gift from the gods. Asculapius The worship of Asculapius was introduced into Rome from Epidorus, whence the statue of the god of healing was brought at the time of a great pestilence. Grateful for their deliverance from this plague, the Romans erected a temple in his honour, 
on an island near the mouth of the Tiber. End of section 17